If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these love. Let's pray. Father, we, when we hear these words, we hear Christ. When we hear this love, we see Christ. This is how he loved us on the cross. This is how he loves us today. And this is how he will love us forever for this love that he gives never ends. I ask, Father, you'd be gracious with us this morning that we might see this love in this church at this time, that we might build up this place to your honor and glory. You're certainly worthy of it. Give us wisdom to hear hearts that are rightly moved, rightly moved by your word, and then lives that reveal this magnificent love. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I cannot read that and not see Christ. I pray that when you read it, you see Christ too. It describes him. It could be his resume. Uh, This chapter is a chapter you probably know well. I'm sure you've heard it before. Um, It is considered one of the greatest pieces of literature in the world. Um, It's understandable when, when we read through it. It lifts up an understanding of love that supersedes all other definitions. And last week when we were working through 1 Corinthians 12 and we were talking about the gifts that God gives to build up the body and to edify the body and how we're to be both unified and diverse in the community, he ends that chapter. Go back just a couple verses with me. Um, he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Then he says, I will show you still a more excellent way. Now, chapter 12 was pretty excellent to me. I was overwhelmed with the teaching on this unity and diversity in the community grounded in the Trinity that comes into the church. It was overwhelming to me. Um, But then he says, and I'll show you a more excellent way. He says, there's something better. And of course, that something better, that more excellent way is love as described in chapter 13. And it's what we have a chance to look at today. And by God's grace, we will hear and understand this This agape love. Agape is a Greek word to describe the love that Paul's talking about here in 13. Um, There are are four primary loves we see in Scripture. We see eros, romantic love. We see philos, which is a brotherly love. We see storge, which is a familial love or parental love. But what Paul is talking about here in chapter 13 are none of those. He's talking about agape. And, And agape, I think, is best understood on the cross. You say, well, I don't, what is this agape love? It's what Christ did on the cross. It is, a, um, it is a love that is poured out 
on somebody or someone, not because they're worthy of receiving that. It is a, it is a radical display of other-centered love poured out by the lover upon the beloved, not because the beloved is worthy of receiving it, but, but this is what the lover so desires. It is a love that truly puts others first. It is a selfless, sacrificial, biblical love. And that's what Paul talks about here, this agape love. If you've been in the church any period of time, you've heard the word agape. It's used quite a bit. Um, I think it's misused quite a bit as well. Um, I want to look at it today in three ways. I want to look at the fruitlessness of the gifts apart from this love. All the gifts that he talked about in chapter 12, they are utterly fruitless apart from agape love. He makes that clear in this chapter. Number two, I want to look at the nature and the action of this agape love. What is it and what does it do? We get a great description, then we get its power as it moves out. And number three, this, it's permanent. It lasts forever. So the fruitlessness of the gifts without agape love, verses 1 through 3. The nature and action of agape love, verses 4 through 7. And then the permanence of agape love, verses 8 through 13. All right, let's look at the first point. The fruitlessness of all gifts without agape love. Last week, we saw that the Corinthians... They were taking the gifts and they were elevating some and they were lowering others in order to to receive glory for themselves. They were ranking the gifts. And Paul made it very clear. He says, listen, all the gifts are important and all the gifts are essential. You can't say this one is, is, is dispensable and this one's indispensable. He says, they're all important. But then he comes here in verse 13 and he says, there's a universal condition to them all. Regardless of how you're ranking them or how you perceive them, there is something that is essential to all the gifts. It is an undergirding and a foundation that without this one thing, the rest don't matter. And that one thing, of course, is this most imperative, present, active, agape love in the church. Real, present, and active in the church. And then he gives, he uses five examples of, of gifts that they thought they were, they were pretty good in. And he uses those in the first few verses to make his point. Look, look at verse 1. He talks about tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, and sacrifice. Verse 1. Paul said, if, if I, the Apostle Paul, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now we know, we're going to know this in the next, we're going to spend a few weeks in chapter 14 because it is a complicated and difficult chapter. But the Corinthians took great pride in this gift of tongues. Not only did they take great pride in it, they absolutely perverted it. They made a mess of it. Much of, much of what's taking place in several churches, charismatic churches today, very similar thing. We'll see that next week. To speak in tongues was to have the supernatural ability to speak in another language, another human language without being trained. So it would be as though I today could speak fluent Farsi without any training of any kind. And of course, we'd have several interpreters here as well if I could do that. Okay, That's what Paul was talking about here. And then he says, if I could speak in the tongues of men or even of angels, and, and my motivation, my foundation, that which undergirds this gift of tongues is not love. Look at what he says. He says, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Now, rather than his words being profitable to build up the church, because that's what the purpose of the gifts are, rather than it actually edifying the church and blessing the church, he says, I'm going to be noise. I'm going to be loud, senseless, harsh sounds without melody, without meaning, without edification. Some of you say, oh, I know that noise. There are those times when you're trying to, there are those times when you're trying to study or you're trying to read and there's something going on in the background. Maybe it's a blower outside. You know, maybe it's people running around the house making too much noise. And, you know, you feel like the Grinch going, the noise, noise, noise. And you can't get it to stop. Paul's saying, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels and it's without love, that's what it's like. Senseless, loud, distracting. You know, I had parents, when I was in the classroom, and I'd have parents come and deal with students who were in crisis mode. And I was always amazed at the number of times that a parent would come in, and they would sit down, and they would offer this incredible counsel to their son or daughter, and would oftentimes fall on deaf ears, only for me to find out later the reason that that son or daughter did not receive that word from the parent is it was not given in love. I had a young lady, um, my last few years of teaching, 
Her father was willfully absent from her life for 17 years. He comes back in when she's 18. He sits in my office and he tells her what she ought to do. And afterwards, I remember sitting with her. I said, your father gave some great counsel. She goes, I don't even know who that man is. And I said, I thought it was your father. She says, it is my father, but I haven't seen him in 17 years. So that, those words, without love, are a clanging symbol. They're noise. John said in 1 John 3.18, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. They have to go hand in hand. Got to go hand in hand. Even if you're speaking a language of angels. He continues in verse 2. Look, he said, if I, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, he says, I am nothing. Again, Paul's grabbing on to those gifts that they love. They love the prophecy. They love the knowledge. They're in Corinth. These are Greeks, right? They love the knowledge. He says, so if you have, if you have prophecy, you, if God speaks to you, thus saith the word of the Lord. If you have knowledge a supernatural understanding of the redemptive work that God is doing through Jesus Christ. If you have that knowledge given to you by God, if you, Paul says, even if you have the faith so powerful you can remove a mountain, if you don't have love in it, underneath it, motivating it, if that's not why you're exercising these gifts, notice what he says. He says, I am nothing. Nothing. It does not nullify the gift. It does not nullify the power. Notice he says, if I have prophetic power, if I have faith, but I don't have love, he says, I am nothing. In other words, this is an amazing statement. He's not nullifying the gift or the power. He's nullifying the person. He said, I'm nothing. In the eyes of God, I'm nothing. If 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 I can prophesy like no other, if I can speak in a tongue like no other, if I have this incredible knowledge from heaven about the redemptive work of Christ like no other, if I can, if I can move a mountain with my faith, but I don't have love. Paul says, I am nothing in God's economy. I'm nothing in the eyes of God. Verse 3. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So he takes the most extreme piety and the most extreme sacrifice. He says, if I, if I go to that, 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 that degree of, of, of giving where I actually give my body over, but I don't have love. He says, I profit nothing. In other words, what we see here is that the gifts exercised without love have the opposite effect. Go back, if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 7 in chapter 12. In verse 7, chapter 12, Paul said, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The gifts are given for the edification of the church. The gifts are given to build up the body in Christ so that we might, as a church, bring glory and honor to the living God. And, and what's happening here is, is these gifts that are given and being exercised without love are having the exact opposite effect. It's not lifting up, it's tearing down. It's not, it's not bringing edification and unity. It's bringing self-glorification. They proved harmful. They prove self-serving. Paul says, essentially, you try to exercise these gifts absent agape love. He says, you are a noise. You are nothing and you gain nothing. You're not building anything up. You're just tearing things down. So the conclusion is, it's wonderfully clear and, and a bit terrifying at the same time. Because without agape love permeating our lives individually and the life of the church, anything we bring here, all the work that we try to do, all the gifts we try to exercise, render us fruitless. We become nothing. We are nothing. We gain nothing. We become like that, that symbol, that clanging symbol, just making noise. In other words, we become religious and mechanical. Now, some of you who have been to other churches, you've experienced this. A church can be wonderfully doctrally sound, and you take love out of it, and that place is a dead place. You have order, you have structure, you have doctrine, you may have the Bible preached rightly, but you take love out, and there's no fruit. There's no fruit. Religion becomes mechanical. When we find ourselves trying to exercise our gifts to receive glory, to save ourselves, to, to put God in our debt, to put others in our debt, 
You know, we, we can do lots of things. We can be motivated. Our, our piety can be motivated by lots of things other than love. We, we can be motivated by a really lofty goal. We can be oftentimes more motivated by pride. We're motivated by peer pressure or family pressure. You know, we, we do things in the name of Christ because our parents want us to. Or we do things in the name of the church because we, we, we want our, our, our relatives to think that we're holy people. If it's not motivated by love, Paul's saying very clearly and very plainly, we gain nothing and we are nothing. <clears throat> in other words, this agape love that he describes here in 13, it is essential to the life of the church. It is essential to the life of every believer. So you say, well, why? I mean, why can't we just take the gifts and go through the motions? I mean, why, why does love have to be so important? And we see that through all sacred scripture. Why, why does love find its way in everything? It's, it's always there. It's always present. It's underneath. It's on top. Why? Because love is hard. Many of us can come in and we can exercise a gift and not be loving. So I can do that. But when we're called to love like this, it becomes a difficult task. So why, why must it be present to actually grow the church? Why do we have to have agape love to edify the body of Christ? The next two points actually answer our question. The next two points that we will see that without this love in the church, the church will disintegrate and fall apart. Or it will, it will morph itself into something quite ugly. And then the last point we'll see that love is the eternal quality. It is the eternal quality. Let's look, at the, let's look at the next point to get an answer to this question of why. The nature and action of agape love. What is it and how does it work? Verses 4 through 7. So after Paul establishes the absolute necessity of this love being in our lives, individually and in the church, which I hope catches our attention, and the first question you should be asking is, do I love like this? Am I a lover like this? Does our church love like this? As you contemplate that, please do so. He, he reveals here the nature and action of it. So that we're not, he doesn't want us thinking eros. He doesn't want us thinking Hollywood love. He doesn't want us thinking American love. He wants us to understand what, what biblical love, agape love is. Look at verses four through seven. <clears throat> love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. How many of you are already done? I'm done. I mean, I'm reading this and thinking, okay, I must not love. Because this is, this is the opposite of mine. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In these few verses, Paul establishes the relational parameters for not only for the church and believers, but for all mankind. This is how we're supposed to be. This is how we're supposed to live in this type of agape love. And one of the things that I hope you'll notice right off the bat of the nature of this love, it is, it's focused on the other. It is a radically other-centered orientation. I mean, just look. Look at the nature of this. It is patient. And that word patient you could also define as long-suffering which means you're going to persevere with difficult people in difficult circumstances. And not only are you going to persevere, it says it is patient and kind, which means you'll be kind. You will serve humbly and gently those difficult people in those difficult situations. So not only will you be patient, but your patience will be manifest in kindness. Feel free to think about those people that come to mind and say, how, well am, how patient am I with X? How kind am I to Y? Agape love is not envious over the prosperity of others. It rejoices in the prosperity of others. And agape love, when it is prosperous, it says here, it does not boast. It won't go around saying, well, look, look at me. It is not arrogant. It will not, agape love never seeks to, to bring itself its own self-exaltation and self-glory. It is not rude, which means agape love is not, does not behave in an inappropriate manner. It does not cause people to stumble in the rudeness. Agape love does not insist on its own way. Agape love doesn't demand its own rights, having it the way it wants it, when it wants it. It's not irritable. We can actually translate that not easily provoked. In other words, <clears throat> the person who possesses agape love, they're not looking for a fight. It's amazing to me how many believers are always looking for a fight. 
says it's not, we're not supposed to be irritable and easily provoked. We're supposed to be peacemakers, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. They should be called children of God. It's not resentful. Better translation. <clears throat> Listen closely. It keeps no records of wrong. It keeps no records of wrong. That means agape love doesn't go, oh, I remember when you did that, and I'm going to store that away, and I, I got that three years from now, and it's ready. It doesn't do that. Agape love doesn't do that. It doesn't keep that record of wrongdoing so it can come back and use it against the person in the future. Look at verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. There's, agape love has no, there's no joy in, in people stumbling. The flesh does that. The flesh, even within the Christian circles, looks out and says, oh, you know, that person's not doing so well. And there's almost that sense of glee because if they're not doing well, then I must be doing better. And we lift ourselves up based upon the struggles and the, uh, the hardships of others. Agape love does just the opposite. It rejoices, it says here, in all truth. The truth of God, the truth of salvation, the truth of the love of Christ, the truth of heaven, and the truth of hell, and the, and the truth, of, uh, truth of hope in a Christ that was crucified. It rejoices in righteousness. This agape love that Paul talks about here. In, in all these qualities that are listed here in verses 4, 5, and 6, what we see is a single principle, and that is the lover, the lover putting the other above themselves. The, the lover puts the needs of the beloved first. Every quality we see of this love is one of dying to self. Every quality of this love is one that says, it's not about me, it's about God. It's not about me, it's about others. And that's what makes it both so beautiful and so difficult. It's so radical because it's opposite the world, and it's so difficult because it's opposite our flesh. I don't know about you, saints, but I, I more often than not am more concerned about me than I am others. And this agape love saying it's the exact opposite. Look at, look at how it then takes action. Look at what Paul reveals about these supernatural qualities. When it gets your heart, I mean, when it really gets you, how it then moves out and it changes the way you live. Look, look at verse 7. This love, it's in action. This love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love bears all things for the sake of others. That bear is good because usually it's talking about those individuals that, that we're having a bearish relationship with. It bears it. It stays with it. It embraces the suffering of a brother or sister. It doesn't cast them off. It says, I'm going to come alongside. This love that captivates you, it believes all things. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you're supposed to be naive. It doesn't mean that the, the, the believer exercising agape love is gullible. That's not what it means. What it means is, is that you will trust first. You will give someone the benefit of the doubt first. You will, you'll actually strive, and this is hard, saints. You'll strive to see the grace that God is doing in someone before you see all the junk that's in them. Right? I mean, I don't know there's anything more foolish for the believer than to highlight the sin in someone else's life. I mean, is that really that difficult? We're all sinners saved by grace, but we're still sinners. And it's easy to highlight the junk. It's much more difficult to go, what is God doing in that person's life? And see the grace. And see the gifts. And actually believe these things. To give someone the benefit of the doubt. Until they prove otherwise. And they may prove otherwise. We're not supposed to be foolish. We're not supposed to reject reality. But give someone the benefit of the doubt first. Or second. Or third. This agape love is hopeful. It hopes all things. Again, this is not some foolish optimism. This is not some Disneyland pie-in-the-sky approach toward life. But this is the realistic understanding that if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, no struggle, no, no hardship, no stumbling will defeat you. Why? Because Jesus wins. We know the end of this story. Jesus wins. And if you're in Christ, you win. And that means that we can be eternally hopeful. We can look forward to that day when he comes again in glory. Put great hope in that. 
This love bears, this love believes, this love hopes. And, and the last one in this, and I think there was reason for it. There's tons of dialogue on the order of these. You can read up on that yourself. But I like how he ends it. It endures. You know, that's a military term. It's a military term, and it literally means to remain in the battle, to stay behind in the fight. When everybody else is leaving, when everybody else is running, this endurance is to sustain the assault of an enemy. You know what that means, saints. That means that agape love stays the course. It refuses to depart from relationships because the relationships have become difficult. It refuses to leave family or friends or brothers or sisters or wives or husbands or children because suddenly life has taken a turn for the worst. It means you fight until the end. And that end is Christ coming again in glory. He takes you home. Endurance. Think about how many families would be restored today. How many broken families would be restored today? How many marriages would be restored today? How many churches with brothers and sisters in the bond of Christ would be restored today if this single imperative of agape love were submitted to, if we just endured? If we just stayed the course, see how it's going to work out. I mean, it, it would radically change everything. It would change families. It would change marriages. It would certainly change the church. Certainly change the church in the West where we are a highly transient people. If we don't like it, we go here. We don't like it, we go here. How are you going to get to know anybody? I mean, how do we grow in this faith unless we stick around? How does that happen? My wife was sharing with me, and I won't use names, but she was sharing with me. She was sharing a struggle with some sisters in Christ. And one of those sisters has been around for 20 years. It's different. When, people, when you have history with people, when, when you're there with people for a long period of time, there's great transparency and there's the opportunity for that. But you've got to endure. That's what agape love does. I mean, what, what a glorious picture of love. Patient, kind, not envious, boastful, arrogant or rude, not selfish, not irritable or resentful. It rejoices in truth, it bears, it believes, it hopes, and it endures all things. Is it any wonder so many young couples pick 1 Corinthians 13 for their wedding? It has nothing to do with weddings, by the way, you know that. Paul's talking about the church in chapter 12 and the gifts, and then he brings this this foundational principle for it all. But you can see why a, 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 a husband or wife to be will pick this, because if they can love like this, If a husband can put his wife's needs above his own, if a wife can can truly be other-centered and not not so irritable and not so resentful, then that that marriage is going to be glorious. If, If families and friendships can actually have patience and kindness and and eliminate envy and boasting and arrogance, if brothers and sisters in Christ in a local body can rejoice in truth if brothers and sisters in Christ can bear each other's burdens if we can together hope all things and believe all things and endure all things together not not because any of us are um, necessarily all that lovely right agape love lavishes love upon those that are not that lovely and that's one of the things I love so much about it. Because I know myself, I'm not that lovely. I'm not that lovable. And if you're true about your state in Christ, you know you're not that lovable either. And the glorious thing is that Christ loves us anyway. And he says, now you love one another like that. Not because they deserve it. Not because they're worthy of it. Not because they're all that lovely. But because this is the love that I've given to you. Poured out on us through Christ and the cross. Saints, what I know is this. This is what the Bible teaches and just in my time pastoring here. Without this love in the church, without it actually moving and becoming present and active, we cannot be the unified, diverse community of believers that we were called to be in chapter 12. Cannot be. That love has to be here. It has to be here. And if it is here, then everything else can come. And everything else will follow if it is here. But if it is not, then we are noise, we are nothing, and we gain nothing.
I mean, think about just some of these gifts. Tongues without love. It becomes distracting. It becomes deceptive. And as we'll see next week, it's perverted. Prophecy without love becomes oppressive. Thus saith the word of God. Knowledge without love turns into pride. Faith without love is misplaced hope. Charity without love becomes self-glorifying. Sacrifice without love is self-serving and self-salvation. Every single fantastic gift given by God, absent love, becomes perverted and therefore destructive. Got to have love. We got to have it. We got to have it in our lives. We got to have it in the church. These gifts that Paul talks about are given for the common good. It's for building up the body of Christ. But if we don't have love, we, if we don't have love, we can't even... Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said in verse 40 of Matthew 22, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And all the gifts. Everything hangs on these two. That means any motivation we have for doing anything right or true or pure or good, any motivation that we have for exercising gifts that don't have love, it's in disobedience to God. Right? We're supposed to love God first, and we're supposed to love one another second. We can't glorify God by being disobedient, even if you are exercising your gift faithfully, because that love has to be there. It has to be grounded. Everything has to be grounded in it. So we see by God's grace that it is absolutely essential, this agape love in the church, and we see it's both its nature and its action working itself out. Are you still with me? All right, let's look at the last point then. It's essential because it's eternal. It's essential. It is, it's necessary. We see it. It is essential because it's eternal. That means it's always been. Right? I mean, when we talked about, we had a chance to talk about the Trinity last week, and I, and I pray that you didn't get totally disengaged from that, that theological teaching. Um, but in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always loved one another. So this agape love that we're talking about here, it has always been. And this agape love it will always be. It goes on forever and ever. It has always been, it is, and it will always be here. Look at verse 8. <clears throat> After all the gifts have ceased, love never ends. Love never ends, he says. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. The Corinthians, they had with all their prized gifts and all their self-exaltation, Paul's saying here, in a very loving way, you fools, they're all going to go away except love. And yet you don't have the one thing that's truly eternal. You don't have the one thing in your church that has always been, is, and always will be, and that's love, this agape love. You say, well, why do the other gifts cease? Why do they have to go away? What is the purpose of the gifts? to build up the body of Christ. It's to edify the church. The gifts are given for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, right? That's the purpose of the gifts. And those gifts are given that God might be revealed more clearly and that God's people might be brought into greater submission to his will. So the magnification and revelation of God and the right loving submission of God's church. <clears throat> And therefore, every single gift other than love becomes terminal. Look with me. You know, the gifts, the sign gifts, miracles, healings, speaking in tongues, interpretation, they were given in the time of Christ and during the time of the apostles to substantiate the gospel. And, and then they terminated. They had their right time to reveal God and the gospel truth. The revelatory gifts of prophecy. And we had a chance to talk about this on Wednesday. They ended with the, the completion of the word of God. No one goes around today, no Bible-believing evangelical Christian says, Thus saith the Lord, because he has already saith the Lord. And that's what we have in the Bible. And so you have, you have that gift. And all the other gifts, faith, teaching, mercy, administration, they will end when? When the perfect comes. You say, well, what is that? Listen, that's not the Bible. 
It's also not Christ, although Christ is perfect. When the perfect comes in the Greek, that is when consummation of human history comes. It is when Christ comes. It is when heaven comes to earth and the entire redemptive work of God is complete. And in that time, when the perfect comes, there'll be no need for the gifts. Why? Because God will be revealed perfectly in Christ and we'll be in his presence. And why else? You will not have the flesh. The church of God will no longer battle. We as a bride will be made perfect and holy and pure. And therefore, there's no need for the gifts. What must abide? Love must abide. But we won't need any of the others. For we will be in the presence of God Almighty. Look at verse 9. Paul says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And that perfect has not yet come, saints. That means the partial is still here. That means what? That means our knowledge is partial. Right? I mean, and that makes sense. That means even the prophecy that, that made up the word of God is partial. You say, wait a minute. I thought it's infallible. It is. I thought it's the word of God. It is. I thought it was, it was profitable for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. It is. It is. It is. It's all those things. But it's still partial. 2 Peter 1.3, he said, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In the Bible, we have everything we need for salvation and holiness. But it is still partial. Because when the perfect comes, when redemptive history closes, and you are made holy, and you're standing in the presence of Christ, seeing him face to face, then knowledge will no longer be partial. It'll be full. When all things become new because of the great covenant kept by our Lord, then the partial will become complete. And that means all the gifts which are partial except love will pass away because we will become as he is. We will be in his presence. We're told in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, The apostle said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. In that, other words, you're saved now, you're in Christ now, but you're not all what you're going to be. Praise God for that. That we're not done cooking yet. Right? We're not done yet. There's so much more that Christ will do. And then it says, he continues, but we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The partial will be gone and will be complete in the presence of God and no longer in sin. He gives us two illustrations. Look at verse 11. He says in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And what he's doing is he's making this comparison to how we are now in Christ and how we will be when Christ comes, when we are as Christ is, when we see him as he, we, he is and we become as he is. And you know what that means? That means that all the prophecy, all the knowledge, all the faith, all the gifts that we have right now, as glorious as they are, by comparison to how we will be in the presence of Christ, Paul says, it is as though we are speaking, thinking, and reasoning like children. So I don't like the way that sounds. I do. Because even as, as glorious as all the gifts are and all that we have here, I can't wait I can't wait to be rid of this. I can't wait to stand in front of the presence of God and actually be made whole as we had a chance to sing this morning. The partial is not complete. And I pray that there's a longing there for you too for that completion in Christ when he comes again. He gives us another example in verse 12 because he knows that we're not going to hear this correctly. He says, "Now, For now, now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, when the perfect comes, face to face. He says, now I know in part, but then, when the perfect comes, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You know, the mirrors back in the first century weren't the mirrors that you have in your bathroom today. They were polished pieces of metal. So if there was any, if you've ever looked at metal of any kind, if there's any kind of indentation, a dimple or a crease, it, it warps the image, Right? So if you were standing there in the first century trying to quaff your hair before you were going to go out to dinner with your husband or your wife and you were looking into this brushed piece of metal, it's going to give you a distorted you know, image of it. 
even today, with the best mirrors, what you have is distorted, right? I mean, fundamentally, everything you look at is opposite in a mirror, right? It's certainly indirect. And even the best mirrors, even the best mirrors, they twist things. They twist things. And so Paul, the word he uses here in, in verse 12, dimly, uh, it's, it's a word in the Greek where we get the word enigma. Now look at that again. He says, for now we see in a mirror like an enigma. It's puzzling still. It's, it's not clear yet. And I don't know about you, but the longer I live, the more I realize how true that is. You think that you're seeing things clearly, and then everything gets kind of fuzzy and hazy, even with Christ, and even with the gospel, and even with the word of God. It's hard sometimes. But when we come into the presence of Christ, when we are face to face with him, what's going to happen? I mean, Christ is light. And so the brilliance of the light of Christ will make everything brilliantly clear. We know in part now. We know in part now the love of God. We know, we know in part now the word of God. We know in part now that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We know these things in part. But then, when the perfect comes, we will know it fully. To what degree? Paul says here, look again, verse 12, just as God fully knows us right now. No covering, no hiding, no puzzling, no enigma. Crystal clarity. This is the agape love that God says we are to have. This is the agape love that's supposed to come and be the undergirding and foundation of the church and move its way into relationships. A love that is grounded, now listen closely, because the latter part of verse 12 is compelling. It is a love that is grounded in the fact that God knows you right now. I mean, he really knows you. He knows you perfectly at this very moment. Now, for some, you see, that's kind of a terrifying thought. He's a holy God. And I would say that apart from Christ, that is the most terrifying thought. That he knows you. That there's no hiding, there's no covering, there's no sneaking. I mean, God knows every thought. He knows every word before you say it. He knows every action before you commit it. He knows how rebellious our hearts are. He knows how little we truly love. He knows us. I mean, we can fool, we can fool people. You're not going to fool God. And so the end of verse 12, it comes in and it says that God knows fully who we are right now. And apart from Christ, that is terrifying. But in Christ, it's the most glorious thing ever. Why? You know what that means? If God knows you fully right now, and yet in Christ loves you eternally, do you get that? Because that's true, it changes everything. There's no more hiding. There's no more need to hide. God knows you. He knows all your junk. He knows all the lies. He knows the deception. He knows the relationships that you have not lived rightly in. He knows the stuff. He knows the stealing. He knows, he knows everything. He knows it. And in Christ, he loves you eternally. You take those together. You put God's infinite knowledge of you right now, and you slam that together with the love of Christ on the cross, and you will have transformation. You'll have people that live differently. Because you will know you know that that love that's been given to you is not because of your worthiness, not because of your loveliness, certainly not because of your holiness, but because of Christ, because of his loveliness, because he is worthy. In Christ, God loves you with an agape love. He's lavished it on you through the cross, the great work of the cross. Christ became a man, right? And, and, and he lived that life of perfection, in holiness to God. And then he died that horrible death for us on the cross. And then he rose from the dead. And he did this great work so that the, the right judgment that we deserved as a result of our sin wouldn't come upon us in Christ. It would be placed upon Christ instead. So he would bear all the suffering. He'd bear all the torment himself. He'd be treated like the sinner that we are. And then the opposite would happen for us. God would pour out on us the righteousness of Christ and the majesty of Christ. God didn't have to compromise his holiness 
He just took the punishment and he put it on someone else. He put it on Jesus. And you know what that means. That enables God to know you. Listen, saints. It enables God to know you as a sinner through and through and love you as a saint. It enables God, the holy God, to know you as a sinner through and through, deserving of hell, deserving of judgment, and but in Christ to love you as a saint, to love you as a holy one, because that's who you are in Jesus. You've become that person, partially now, fully in the future. And the glorious thing is that this truth enables us to love in like manner. You say, how so? If you see that God knows you through and through and then loves you anyway in Christ, it'll provide for you a security and satisfaction in your life that will enable you to love others in like manner, to truly love in an agape way. Because this has to be one of the higher, if not highest commands in all the sacred scripture, to love one another as Christ loves us. That is not possible by the flesh. That is an impossible endeavor for any human being apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit. But I want you to see what happens. In Christ, you have the security and the satisfaction to go and extend yourselves. You know, most of us, most of us operate from places of insecurity. We're insecure about how we look. We're insecure about our jobs. We're insecure about, about uh, relationships. We're certainly insecure about our standing with God. And this is where this agape love from God changes everything, right? If you're, if you're radically insecure, then you're in a constant battle with yourself of trying to save yourself. You're in a constant battle trying to make yourself seem something that you're not. So go back to the passage again. Instead of rejoicing in the success of others, if you are insecure, you will, you will envy their prosperity. You'll envy it. Instead of resting in the love that Christ has for you, you'll become boastful and arrogant. Why? You have to. You've got to keep lifting yourself up because you're so insecure. You don't have the security of Christ. We brag. And when we brag about our successes and we brag about our careers or our families or we brag about even the gifts, the knowledge or the faith that we have. And we do that because of our insecurity. Trying to project ourselves before man and before God in, in a better light. We rejoice in the wrongdoing of others because when, we do, when, we, when someone else stumbles, if I'm insecure, that makes me feel better. You say, well, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. I mean, look at that guy. The same struggle we have as a result of our lack of satisfaction in Christ. We come to Christ hungry and thirsty, spiritually starved and spiritually parched. And so if we, if we lack that satisfaction that only Jesus can bring, if we lack the satisfaction in our heart of the love that Christ brings, love that God brings through Christ, then we become, go back to the path, we become impatient and rude. Right? We will insist upon having it our way because we need to have it our way in order to be satisfied. And if things don't straighten up and go our way, we'll become irritable and resentful. If we're, if we're not satisfied in Christ, we will not bear with people. We will not believe people. We certainly will not endure people. We won't. In fact, what happens is the exact opposite. If we're not satisfied in Christ, then most of our relationships are to use people. We're just trying to get stuff from each other. And that means when, when our needs are not being met, our, our felt needs are not being met by others, if we're not satisfied in Christ, we will give up on these and we'll go find someone else. Why do you think the divorce rate is so high? Husbands and wives, after years, it's amazing now to me, the statistics on the number of those who are divorcing later, 10, 15, 20 years. Like, you've got to be kidding me. You're in it for 20 years? Come on. What happens? In many situations, those individuals are no longer satisfied in the marriage. So what do they do? I'm going to find someone else to meet my felt needs. And apart from Christ, that's bound to happen. Here's the glorious news. This agape love that God pours out on all those who believe, this love provides the security and the satisfaction that you need to be secure in your salvation in Christ 
and to be completely satisfied in him. And in those two things, you can then go out and you can love people with agape love also in this radical, selfish, selfless, sacrificial way because you're satisfied and secure in Jesus. In other words, what it does is Christ, the love of Christ, it breaks the cycle. It breaks that inward-oriented, selfish cycle. And as soon as it's broken, now suddenly you go, wait a minute. I want to live in a manner that, that reveals my love for God. And I want to re- live in a manner that reveals my love for people. The focus changes from you to others. So that you can now, in the Holy Spirit, not of your own flesh, in the Holy Spirit, you can love patiently and kindly. You can love humbly without envy or boasting or arrogance. You can be a person who loves and not be irritable and resentful. You can be that person that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things in Christ because you have the security and the satisfaction that comes from the Lord. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Satisfied. He also says, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that means if we, if we eat that bread, that manna from heaven, Jesus Christ, and we drink from that cup of his blood, as we do every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, if you do that, there, there'll be a satisfaction and there'll be a security that comes from God that is truly supernatural. And it will enable you to live in a supernatural way. That means you won't be chasing after security and satisfaction in how you relate to others. You won't use people in your relationships. If you are completely known by God, a sinner through and through, and simultaneously loved all the way to the top in Christ, that love overflows. Your cup overflows. And it will go into your home. It'll go into your church. It'll go into your workplace. I pray it goes into your neighborhood. And you begin to to manifest agape. You become to, people begin to see you as an agape lover. And it's weird at first, it is. I mean, the response is, well, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? That's a great question. For the love of God. Because this is the love that God has poured out on me and I cannot not love you like this. My cup's overflowing. And that means, saints, that as hard as it is, and I hate using historical anomalies, and, and maybe, so I won't. As hard as it is in our most self-centered time, in our most self-centered culture, that this agape love can turn that around so that our focus can be on God and others and not me, me, me. This is a very real possibility in power in Christ. Your time, your money, your energies, your talents, your sleep, given up for others, joyfully. Not to earn a good standing with God and not to impress others, but joyfully because you love people. You ever notice how much easier it is to sacrifice for someone you truly love? If you love people, if you love your enemy and you pray for those who persecute, if you love them, this type of movement will come. When you get that phone call at 2 a.m., you won't go, oh, well, hmm, I'm tired. If you love that person, you're in the car, you're on your way, you're going to be there. Why? You love them. And then they say to you, thank you so much. What are you talking about? I love you. This happens. This is the way it works. I love you. That's what we want to see here. That kind of love. That kind of 2 a.m. tired love. That, that Friday afternoon, I'm exhausted from the week kind of love. That I, I'll make the meal for you because I love you. Not because I have to. I'll spend the extra time. I'll spend the extra money because I love you. Is it any wonder? Look at verse 13. Is it any wonder when Paul says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but what? The greatest of these, the greatest, the greatest, the greatest of these is love. It's what everyone wants. It's how you want to be loved. It's how you want to love. I mean, we find it here to be the pinnacle of the expression of God to man. Faith, it may move a mountain. It may. 
But only the love of Christ as exercised on the cross for sinful man can move a man's heart and change it from stone to flesh. Hope may keep your eyes fixed on the prize, but only the love of Jesus Christ as expressed on the cross can save a man, make a man holy, and actually deliver that guaranteed prize in the end. Only the love of God. Knowledge, my beloved, it may grow us in wisdom, but only Jesus Christ can satisfy the deepest longings of the hungry soul. Only him. Prophecy may reveal God to us, but only God's love, his, his manifest love on the cross enables us to know God and be known by God. His love on the cross in Christ. Only through this love, only through the cross, only through his broken body, and only through his spilled blood can you and I and every believer have the security and satisfaction that sends us out on fire, that sends us out loving Evangelicals have a tendency to make things way too complicated. I mean, we, we, and it, it's right, we need to talk strategy and we need to talk about plan, but we make it way too complicated. Paul's saying here, you can do all this work and you can have all these gifts, Corinth, but if you don't have love, you are nothing. And if you have love of Christ, you are everything. I love that. It's simple. I need simple. I need simple. When I studied this passage, I found it beautiful. I found it frighteningly deep. And most of all, I found it hard. Not hard to understand. I get it, and I think you get it. But boy, when it comes to application, wow. This love, this love described here, it's contrary to the way we were raised. It's contrary to our flesh. It's contrary to the culture. It's contrary to the dominions of darkness. And grievously, it's contrary to many churches where there is no love not Camden by God's grace, not this body of believers by God's grace. I pray that we will be a church that truly loves in this way, that truly exercises this love, in its most practical and fundamental ways. Tell me when you feel more loved. When someone talks to you about love or when they pick you up at the airport at 2 a.m.? When do you feel more loved? When do you feel more loved when someone explains to you or expresses to you the very same struggle that you had? Maybe one-upping you, huh? Oh, you, you think that's suffering? I'll tell you about my suffering. Or when that person comes alongside you and they grab your arm and they say, I'll walk with you. I'll walk this one with you. I'll pray with you. I'll be there with you. That's agape. Christ came and did that. He came and did it all the way to the cross. In order for us to exercise this love here, you cannot take it as an imperative and then just go do this love must come from Christ. And therefore, that means you've got to press yourself into Him. You want this type of agape love to flow over in your life? You want your neighbors and your parents and your children to be blessed by this? Husbands, you want your wives to be blessed with this agape love and wives, your husbands? Then you press yourself hard into Christ, as hard as you can, because He is our lover. And the more you know and the more you experience and the more you feel the real love of Christ in your life, the more it will pour out from you. Love him. Love him through the word. Love him through prayer. Love him by gathering together as a body and loving one another. Love him hard. Press into him hard. The deeper you love Christ, and the deeper you understand the love that God has for you in Christ, this love that never ends, it never ends, the more you will love in like manner. If you know this in your heart, and you cultivate it in your heart, it will work itself out. It'll work itself out. This is the love that I desire for myself. This is the love that I desire for my family. It's the love that I desire for our church that when people come here, 
if they see anything, if they see any gift, any wisdom, any knowledge, any discernment, any faith, if they see anything, I want them to see love first. Love first. Because if they do, everything else will come. I'm going to pray right now that God will make this teaching clear for us right now and then he will manifest this love in our lives. Pray with me, pray along with me that he would do that great work not only here but in every church, every true church of his throughout the world. Let's pray right now. Father, we, we know, we know this is true. It resonates so perfectly. We hear this and we can't deny that this is, this is certainly the type of love that you are. This is the type of love that you've shown. And this is the type of love that you've called us to have and to express. We cannot deny its truth. We can come before you this morning and as Pastor Kurt did, we can say, Lord, we have failed in loving like this and we can ask for your forgiveness and we can come to you this morning and say, Lord, please, please give us a love like this in Christ. Show us Christ more clearly so we can love in this selfless, sacrificial, abundant way and then have our cups flow over. We ask this, Lord, that you might be glorified. When we love like this as a church, when our families see this agape love, they know it's from you. When we love our colleagues like this, they'll know it's from you. And we, they might see our good deeds and glorify you, our Father in heaven. I pray that you would do this great work, Lord, so that your son Jesus would be glorified, so that your name would be lifted up. So that in this place, in this time, Jesus Christ will be magnified. We know we don't deserve this, Father. We ask it by your grace. Be gracious with us, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.